Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast. Very excited to have our next guest, Zach Johnson. Zach, thanks for coming on board. Thank you for having me. Uh, if you could introduce yourself and, and let our audience know what you're about. Yeah, sure thing. Um, and it's a pleasure being here today. So my name is Zach Johnson. I'm the Vice President of Business Development at Vizier, who's the market leader in uh, people analytics. And over the past 10 years, I've really been focused on um, the people analytics space. So really mapping and measuring and understanding employees and what makes uh, employees and organizations successful. My background as an entrepreneur, so I had my own company in the space for about eight years. We built it up uh, and we sold it. And then, um, you know, doing late stage startup work and a little bit of entrepreneurship now here at Vizier. That's awesome. Uh, we're really excited about having you on today, considering the broad spectrum of experience that you've had uh, with your latest two ventures. I guess to, to kick it off, entrepreneurship. I know we talked a little bit earlier yesterday about uh, personality types and traits and I think it's a really important conversation to have about personality traits that are necessary to do entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. If you could expound on that, I, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think um, both are really fun, right? Entrepreneurship generally starts with creating something from scratch, whereas entrepreneurship, you're creating something from scratch, but it's under the auspices of an existing organization with existing infrastructure. I'd say from a trade perspective, both require a lot of the same things. They require an open mind. Uh, they require a whole boatload of tenacity. They require the ability to inspire and lead and get people attached to your mission. Um, but I would say the biggest difference is probably first in the degree of patience you have. As an entrepreneur, you know, you're always trying to balance patience with aggression. But in an entrepreneurial context versus an entrepreneurial context, I'd say you need to be a little bit less patient when you're an entrepreneur. And when you're an intrapreneur, you have to be the right kind of patient where you really got to kick some butts in your organization and make things happen. But you also have to recognize that some things take the time that they're going to take. So a little bit of a balance between uh, patience, persistence and motivation, right? So get up and go. Yeah, definitely. I mean, sometimes, you know, in both contexts, you're beating your head against a wall. It's just sometimes it's a different wall, right? When you're purely an entrepreneur, um, you're often beating your head against the wall of like, can I get people to buy my stuff? When you're an intrapreneur, you have that problem, but you also have the problem of how supportive is the organization you're working in. And some organizations are really good at seeding new businesses and some are the total opposite. So there's, there's definitely a little bit of that. So tell us a little bit about the organization that you sold, Syndio. If you could tell us a little bit about that background and how that all came to be, because I think it's a it's a great story of starting out as a services and then moving into a, another arena. Yeah, no doubt. And so I, you know, with Cindio, I kind of stumbled on this business. Like I, I was uh, in undergrad at the time. I was really focused on music and helping um, artists grow their fan bases and managing artists and things like that. And uh, that led me to a field called social network analysis, which is all about the math and science behind relationships and measuring complex systems of humans and how they share information and all that fun stuff. And so we were mostly working on it to do um, like influencer marketing. So being able to dramatically accelerate the adoption of like a, you know, new music you listen to or new content you watch or things like that. In that journey, I wound up doing some work with a professor who's one of the world experts in the space, a guy named Nashir Contractor. It was cool because in the lab, the research was around a whole bunch of different things. Like they were measuring 
relationships and massively multiplayer online role-playing games. They were doing work with, you know, the Army and NASA and Rockefeller and all these cool groups on team science. And then they also were doing network analysis on um, employees in, in, in uh, research and development organizations at companies like Procter & Gamble and Kraft. You know, being young and naive, although still young and naive, but being younger and more naive, um, I was pretty shocked to find out that companies spent so much money on employees, but didn't actually really measure like how they work together. I thought it was uh, ridiculous. I thought it was a little bit stupid. And I was like, well, this is going to be a thing um, because this technology is really powerful. It's like if you understand how people work together, you can drive way better outcomes and you can really help your employees be the best they can be. And so did some research in the area, looked at like what what was going on commercially. And at the time, you know, there was more research coming to the lab than the lab could handle. And also some of it wasn't really research. Like they'd already done those types of studies before, but still you had a company like P&G who wanted to do more of this. And the only place they could get it from was the lab. So Nash and I, we put our heads together. Uh, he was really cool to let a 20-year-old start a company with him. And um, we bootstrapped a consulting firm. So I spent most of like my junior and senior year doing enterprise sales and getting our first uh, couple customers. And now um, we were using primarily like third-party tools, so stuff that um, had been built in the lab or was available for license externally to be able to do the work. Pretty quickly, though, we realized that the tools really bounded what we wanted to do for customers as we learned more about their needs. So we wound up building our own. So our consulting business became more of a tech-enabled services business where we would sell like a hybrid you know, software license services model. And then um, ultimately, we made the jump to software as a service, which was uh, in a... Pretty, pretty brutal entrepreneurial journey. It's really hard to go from services to software. It's one of the things I caution most entrepreneurs against. I was cautioned against doing it myself. And it's probably one of my bigger career regrets in some ways. And in other ways, I learned the most. So it's a, it's a, it's a really tricky journey. And then um, you know, we went through all the different downs and ups of startup life and uh, got the, you know, kind of came down to like, was this business the business to win in our market? And as I learned more about the market, I realized that, you know, it was uh, an important player, but it wasn't, we weren't going to take over the world with it. And that was kind of what I was interested in doing was really changing how people manage people. So um, we had some opportunities to move the company, spend some time doing some M&A. And actually in the process of selling the company, I met the folks who I work with now. And um, I actually was so impressed by the product and the team that, I negotiated myself out of the sale of the company and wound up joining these guys. So it was kind of a wild ride. That is a pretty wild ride. You touched on, and I've never done a product business and with, with uh, utmost respect for people who have that kind of bravery, because I, I think that does take a, a certain level of, of bravery. Thank you. You mentioned that transition, you know, how hard it was and there was some regret involved there. What does that mean? Obviously, I think you're a lifelong learner, like most people, where you don't really have regrets, right? They're just opportunities to learn. But what, what were some of those key takeaways where you'd say, hey, that was really painful, but I got a huge education out of it? It's interesting, right? Like business is mostly pretty simple, but it's, it's a whole bunch of simple things stitched together, which becomes really complicated really fast. And so smart people tend to struggle with business because they either over... They overdo the complexity, right? And they don't boil it down to the simple elements. And also they tend to over, I would say overestimate how hard it is sometimes to do something that seems really simple. Some, like really smart people struggle with simplicity. And so one of the things that was really challenging about moving from services to product 
is that, and particularly a software as a service business, which is a very rigid product business, is that they both require fundamentally different personalities. Like services generally, it's a yes business. Like someone asks you, hey, I want to do this crazy thing. And you're like, okay, I'm pretty smart. I can figure out how we'll do it. Like, yes. And then boom, you have a deal and you put it together. And really smart people like to solve really difficult and, um, and uh, unique problems, right? Software and, and particularly SaaS, it's a no business. You have to build one technology stack that's going to support the vast majority of, if not all of your customers and every request you get or thing that deviates from what you're actually selling, it just tugs at your roadmap. And it means you wind up with this massive mess of software. You know, I had a team of people who started on the consulting side. A lot of folks came from academic backgrounds, just I mean, people who are way smarter than I will ever even hope to get close to. And it was really hard for them to move from saying yes and having a lot of fun saying yes to enjoying saying no. And that's like, it's such a simple thing, like just, just from a culture standpoint, being able to say no, but it's really hard for people who wake up every morning and live to solve tough problems to having a different type of tough problem, which is how do I really find the product market fit for my particular product, you know, like for the particular problem that we're trying to solve. Um, and then really double down on that and say no to stuff that looks like good money, especially when, like, you know, we, we didn't raise a lot of capital. We primarily bootstrapped and did customer funded development. So it was very challenging from a DNA standpoint. And, you know, we lost good people because of it. Some people who, you know, right away realized it wasn't for them. Sometimes it was more painful. But like, I mean, my only real regret on it is not that I did the transition, although I'm really glad I learned it. It's just that like, I could have just started a separate SaaS business and like licensed the software back to the consulting business. And I'd be making a ton of money with a side business right now that I'm not, right? It, it takes a good 18 to 24 months to get a consulting business to like seven figure revenue if you're flying and you're doing it full time. So giving one of those up in retrospect, it'd be really sweet to have like an extra million or 2 million bucks a year, you know? <laughs> so like that, that, that's where the biggest regret comes from. That being said, would I have made the mistake later in my career? Probably. So good to get out of the way. I think that's, it's great stuff is like, well, got that one out of the way. Not going to do that again. I think that's, that's the growth mindset that people have to have. If you're going to do any of this stuff is understand like, that's the cost of admission, right? You know, if, if there was a roadmap, everybody do it, right? I think that's that's part of this process. Uh, you and Shelly have a history. I forget how you guys actually first met. Yeah, I was in the tech industry and got introduced to Zach through a mutual friend. And he spoke at one of our Chicago Sherm conferences. And we quickly realized that we're both targeting the same folks. And so we became fast friends and had a lot of fun meeting a lot of founders and uh, CIOs and CTOs, and um, it was it was a great uh, handful of years. Yeah, I also say one of the reasons I, I think we became friends so quickly is um, I think Shelly and I have very similar values and things we enjoy, but we have very different styles in doing it. So, like, we both like cultivating um, networks and meeting awesome people and. We have a lot of fun doing it, but our approach to it's really different. And so it was fun when we got to merge forces. And I, I've learned a lot from uh, from watching Shelly in action. And I would love to ask you, Zach, because I'm sure the audience is going to want to know. It's so tough going from owning your own business to, you know, working for an entity. I guess what was the, the greatest uh, learning um, that you experienced as well as I'm curious, you know, you've got you've had and, and still have some amazing mentors. Um, curious what advice you got when you had your own business 
versus the advice you're getting now? And also what advice are you giving to folks who are starting out? I'll say the first big thing that I learned is that um, it's actually way better on the other side. Like being an entrepreneur is cool, but it's also kind of cool because it's in vogue right now. Like when I started being an entrepreneur, it was like 10 plus years ago and it actually wasn't that cool. Then it became like really cool when I was midway through. It's kind of like a peak entrepreneur right now. I mean, there's a lot of there, being your own boss is cool in some ways, but it also sucks. Like there was also my first job too. So I was a lousy manager, made a lot of serious management mistakes. My maturity level was low. Like it's a tough, it's a really difficult way to learn hard lessons, which is good because you develop some tendencies and some habits that like allow you to run circles around some people in some ways in your career, but you're also going to be behind in some ways, right? Like now that I'm in a company and understanding like process at scale and things like that, like once in a while we'll do something and I'll be like, huh, you know, that actually makes a lot of sense, but I never even considered or thought about working this way before this type of nuance. So like there is a bit of a learning curve and catch up curve when you make the jump, especially if you haven't if you've been uh, primarily on the startup side or entrepreneurship side, uh, I will say that like not worrying about payroll every day is great. Yeah. Payroll stress is savage. I'd say it's like 90% of the stress that comes from entrepreneurship and just like, it never goes away. And even when you're bigger, like someone has to bear that stress and it's no, it's no joke. A lot of people really struggle with it. Um, I don't miss that. And also like, you know, entrepreneurs, I mean, to the second point or Maybe it was your third point, but I'll jump around. Like to advice I give other entrepreneurs, my favorite entrepreneurs to coach aren't the folks just starting out. Like I can be helpful for them. We can talk through their business and product market fit and things like that. But I really like working with people who are like on their fifth to eighth year, right? So they've been doing it for a while. They really understand their business. You can cut to the chase quickly, you know, really dial in on like a higher order challenge. So like, how are you, do, you know, commercial deal structure, you know, crazy pricing problems, when to sell your company, things like that. And one thing I do advise folks is that like, as an entrepreneur, your identity gets very wrapped up in your business, right? So people get used to being CEO and, and they feel like everyone really likes them because of that, especially with younger entrepreneurs, because your sense of self isn't as well developed. So you get these, you start making decisions that are more emotionally oriented than, than really practical, right? Because at the end of the day, the business is, is strictly an economic asset. Like, yes, you have a mission and like, you know, there, there's lifestyle elements to it too. But like, if you really think about it purely as an economic asset and what's best for that asset, you tend to make much better business decisions. Now, mind you, you should balance it with the other stuff, but like, it's very hard for folks to sometimes emotionally detach in good ways. As an entrepreneur, we tend to think when if, if, if your business, you're either going to sell it and it's going to be successful or sell it and it's going to be, you know, a so-so or bad acquisition or whatever, you know, by the way, my, my acquisition was like mediocre at best. Like it wasn't something, it wasn't like, you know, let's go put this in the newspaper and go brag about it to everybody. Like we built a company, we ran it for a while, we made some money and we sold it and it found a new home, but it was like, it was time, right? It wasn't glamorous. But one thing when, cause most, that's how most businesses go. And when people go through that, they forget, they think that like, oh my God, I've, I've been a CEO. No one's going to hire me. I'm not really qualified for anything because I did everything before, you know, especially young entrepreneurs. And what I find is that young entrepreneurs are actually some of the best people you can hire because first of all, they're used to being like virtually killing themselves every day for their own business. So even if you get one at like 40% capacity, it's like 200% of anybody else. Um, <laughs> second, you have someone who understands every aspect of the business. Like they're not going to be a jerk to anybody, right? Like they've had to do all the legal work. They've had to hire people and do the HR stuff. They've had to clean up, uh, you know, all the dishes in the office when everyone left. Like they tend to be a lot more like really good servant leaders. 
And also they tend to really outperform in their jobs and advance fast. So like I always tell folks like, you know, I've got friends who are, you know, constantly kind of cycling out of M&A activity. A lot of times like there'll be an M&A opportunity where it's like, okay, if we do this, like I can make a million or a couple million bucks. And it's like, dude, you know, look at the total comp there. Like a million dollars is great, but if it locks you in for four years, like you're going to make a million dollars in three years tops looking at the types of roles that you would absolutely crush at and people will hire you for. So I, I spent a lot of time with entrepreneurs talking about what happens after. I've found personally, it's been very exciting. And if I look at the other folks who I've seen go through both good acquisitions and bad, sometimes the ones who go through bad acquisitions actually wind up doing better overall because they're not tied to their company, you know, in terms of um, earnouts or things like that. And they're able to actually go after cooler opportunities. And I did get some advice along that those lines, although it was from people who are much older. So sometimes it's really helpful to have advice from people who are closer to where you're at. You know, I, I keep a pretty serious bench of mentors. I have some who just are more around life advice, but I also like, as of late, I've been really drawing on people in the SaaS community, particularly like, you know, really long tenured software as a service executives to help me just navigate kind of the new world I'm in. The right mentor at the right time can be honestly priceless. And I'm really thankful to have people who've uh, stuck out their necks for me and also have taken the time to help me figure this stuff out. One concept I think you hit on that I'd really like to talk about more is that as you're, as you're doing this and you're, you're an entrepreneur, you're developing muscles that other people never have, right? Or, or would never have because they're not in that same position. But at the same point in time, you haven't developed some of those. I went through the same thing, right? I got to age 32, 33, and my management skills were be angry. I hadn't really figured out how to like work with people because it was like, hey, we're just hard chargers. That's all we do. And so then dealing with people and you get to a certain scale and it's a big challenge. And you mentioned mentorship. Is that where some of that transition started occurring when you're looking for help and you're saying, hey, I, I don't know how to do this. And as as the the founder, you're looking for coaches and mentors and people who can help address some of those shortcomings. Is that what that pivot point was or, or are you always just looking for coaches even earlier on in life? I've always been looking for coaches. Honestly, I just, it was imparted on me very early that it's super important. And like, that's how I got, you know, even got to the point where I could have the company in the first place. Like I had a mentor who, you know, helped me convince my co-founder to even start a company with me. Right. So that really helped. I also have been mentoring since I was really young. Like I just, you know, you just kind of take people under your wing and help them with stuff. And that's something that I spend a, a huge amount of time on is coaching and helping other people because it's really fun when your people that you helped wind up doing more badass things than you. That's like one of my favorite things ever, just because like I used to, you know, help this kid out in music. And now he's like, you know, one of the, the top managers in the U.S. And it's really cool because at one point it was like I was going to do music and now this dude's been way more wildly successful than I ever would have been if I stayed there, right? And so it's it's really rewarding. I will say though that like all the mentoring in the world does not make up for real life experience. And like the challenge I find with entrepreneurs is not the knowledge. Like knowledge is pretty easy to acquire and you can know what the right thing to do is. I'd say emotional experience and like really getting experience making hard decisions is where uh, at least I struggled the most. Cause like, you know, I, I mean, we talked about this a little yesterday where like, 
you said like, you know, you're a hard charging guy, like, you know, management for you was kind of being angry. I was the opposite. Like, you know, I always cared about being liked too much. And, you know, I hired a bunch of people who, uh, you know, was kind of like, if you're really smart and we get along well, so, you know, we'll be friends and work together. But so like, for me, like firing someone was really, really hard. And I took way too long to do it for my first, my first few key fires. Right. Or like, you know, setting boundaries in, in the workplace, you know, to drive good behavior. Like those were the things that for me were really, really difficult. And the only way to learn it in my, for the path that I had was to mess it up a bunch and then just get better each time. But like now I'm at least more aware of my biases and where I go. I've definitely become a lot more hard charging over time, largely as I've learned to be more emotionally detached about the thing. But I mean, it's also good to feel that stuff. Like it's really, you know, if you just learn how to fire and it's impassive and you never really understand the gravity of, of being a leader, right? Like when, when, when you have to let somebody go because of payroll or, you know, because of whatever, and you have to do it yourself and it's your business and you made the decision, um, you know, that's how you, that's how you grow up and learn to become a really, you know, hopefully a better, um, a better leader and also a more empathetic leader because empathetic leaders are the people you want to follow. Yeah. Understanding that the gravity of your decisions have impact on other people's lives, their families, right. Sending somebody home who, you know, has wife and kids is, is one of those uh, things, you know, when people are like, Oh, I can't wait. I had uh, somebody said, Oh, I, I, you know, I don't mind firing people. I'm like, well, I know one of two things is true. You're either a jerk or a liar, you know, because it just, there's no way, <laughs> there's no way uh, once you've done anything of that magnitude and you know, it's because of the decisions you made, right? Uh, that accountability, it, it hits home pretty solidly and it does, but I, I agree. It, it, it helps elevate and reading this book uh, recently, Anti-Fragile. I don't know if Shelly, if you or, or Zach have read it. No, I haven't. Um, they, they talk about it talks about how different organizations, different entities become organic in how they react to, to stressors and friction. And I think that's the, the critical element for entrepreneurship and, and anything. Uh, he tell you there's a big chapter on how critical entrepreneurship is and actually the, the failures of certain startups that's critical for the overall health of, of the, the economy for the, for, you know, that it's required that we make these mistakes at the micro level for the macro to win. Um, it, it's really amazing book. I really enjoy it, but I think, uh, I don't know if I just have a bias to like, I don't like taking medicine that I don't think is going to help. And it's like, let the body take care of it. You know, I have kind of the, uh, that, that minimalist mentality. So I don't know if it's just quantifying and justifying my already predisposition. Uh, but I thought it was a very interesting book. And I think when we think about, you know, uh, friction is, is actually the stuff that helps develop and whether or not you're starting from an internal, whether it's an entrepreneurship or an entrepreneurship, you know, I think it's the pursuit of friction, right? That the path of least resistance is not the answer, right? The obstacle is the way that, that kind of concept of like just simply going the hard route creates a lot of opportunities to learn and grow and improve, build tougher skin, so we're a couple of years into this latest company and we're doing some new things. And whenever we find a big mistake, I'm just so grateful we found it now, you know, because I know that if we were growing too fast or moving too fast and if we find it in five years, it's, it's, it's something that might've killed us, but at the size we're at, it's going to be a punch in the face and we're good to go. 
right? So it's 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 a blessing sometimes when you, you find those mistakes early on. I don't think you should go run your head into a wall, obviously, but you know it's good to knock off some of these things as long as the learning occurs, right? As long as you you take that challenge and and learn from it, improve your process, and and education goes around with people. And um, I don't know. So Shelly, I cut you off before. Did you have a, another question? No, I was just curious because obviously I'm hiring executives and, and Zach, you said something earlier that is of interest to me, which is hiring entrepreneurs uh, would be you know, some of the best employees you could have. I'm curious, knowing what you know, after being an entrepreneur and going through this, what can employers do to be ready to not only bring these folks on board, but kind of create the environment to allow them to be successful because they have done so much? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, entrepreneurs are, they're great to hire for a couple of reasons, right? And some of it's self-serving. I mean, one, they're all the things we talked about earlier, like the different skills and capabilities and emotional muscles, et cetera. The other thing is they're typically undervalued, right? So if they didn't come out of like a massive exit, usually have folks who, you know, they, they had bet money on an outcome that didn't quite happen the way they wanted it to. So they'll take less pay, they'll take more upside. Additionally, for those folks too, like their roles don't always map, right? So if someone was a CEO before, they're unlikely to be the CEO at the next place unless you're hiring for the CEO role. So like they're a lot more capable of lateral movement also too, since they know all the different functions. Sometimes they can do kind of crazy jobs that nobody else can because they understand just enough of each component to not mess it all up. But I do think though, at the end of the day, like probably the most important thing if you're going to hire an entrepreneur for an executive role is there's just like, what is their knowledge of the market they're playing in? Market knowledge takes a long time to develop. It requires deep relationships that gets you intel kind of before anybody else knows it. You have to be able to really understand the customer and feel the demand, and they have to have some vision. If you take someone like, like let's use me, for instance, right? I, I know SaaS really well. I know HR and SaaS really, really well. I know, um, you know, HR, SaaS, and analytics pretty much better than, 99.99% of people out there at this point, you know, if you were to throw me into like B2C marketing or like, you know, like, or sorry, like small, like small B2B marketing or like, you know, like B2C scenario or something like that. Yeah. I'm pretty bright and could figure some of it out, but I just like lose the 10 year knowledge advantage that I have in my own domain. You know, I see this all the time with people, you know, it's like when someone goes, who's been successful to start like a bar or restaurant and they get their butt kicked because they've never worked in a low margin business before, let alone the restaurant business. Or like, you know, if someone wants to, to finance a film or something like that, like if you don't know the market you're in really well, you're going to get your butt kicked a little bit. And sometimes you can be insulated, right? Like if it's a big company hiring someone to run a division, yeah, they'll be insulated by cash flow and you know, whatever their existing P&L they're coming into is. But like, depending on, on how much appetite for learning a company has, you know, I, I would probably prioritize someone who at least has, you know, five years of relevant market experience and has been an entrepreneur if you're going to make an entrepreneur hire. Carry out for that is, uh, do you think it matters if it was a successful, and, I, and not successful from like uh, an exit of like, you know, there's, there's a failure where it's like, oh, it just went broke or I quit or changed direction, whatever. And then there's the, I sold it. Uh, I sold it to my partners, some kind of successful exit. Does that impact your thinking at all? Like if you were interviewing like a, an, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur, and they came and you were saying, Hey, so how did that all end? And it's like, yeah, I just, 
you know, I just got kind of sick of it. So I got tired of doing the sales. I got tired of doing this. Does that impact you? Not really. I mean, to be honest, like, and like, especially entrepreneurs who have like the so-so or less exits are some of the best hires because they've learned, like, let's put it this way. People tend to credit successes to themselves, right? And a lot of times people aren't successful because of themselves or successful because of market timing or their team, or, um, you know, the, 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 they just happen to stumble upon product market fit. And then when failures happen, they tend to blame them on everybody else. People who've really bit it right and really had a wipeout, man, they know what they did wrong most of the time. Like, unless they're really not <laughs> self-aware, which you can filter out pretty fast. The only thing you got to watch for is to make sure they weren't so beaten up that their risk tolerance is shot, right? Which can happen. So, you know, you got to balance it. Like, it's funny, like, I'm actually more risk adverse. I'm probably way less risk adverse than the average person. But as far as entrepreneurs go, like, I'm definitely not a, like, risk seeker. And so it's, it's funny, like, you want to see where someone falls in that risk profile. But like, I mean, at the end of the day, like, if you've, you know, if you've fallen a couple times, you understand the stakes, you understand how much wiggle room you have. It's sort of like, you know, like, I don't know if you ever watch like MotoGP, on like the motorcycles where like to do the turns, they like have to like drag elbow, basically, you know, unless you've wiped out a couple times, you don't know the edge of traction, <laughs> you know, and like, if you want to have a really high performing, high growth business, either internally or externally, you got to know where the edge of traction is. And so people who wiped out before, I find personally are less likely to lose all your money and they're also less likely to have a big attitude too. Yeah. And if you want to see any good wipeouts, check out any videos on that Isle of Man race. Yeah, it's really great. You got it. That's insane. I see that stuff and it's like, just even the people stand on the sidelines. It's like, well, where's your brain? You talked about something the other day about market fit. You had a great concept of, of between market fit and smart team, right? If you could explain that, I, I thought that was really great insight. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to call it like your rich neighbor, you know, like if you have a rich neighbor and you're like, how does this jerk have like all this money in the successful business? Like, what are they doing right that I'm doing wrong? And, and what's funny is with entrepreneurs a lot, they kind of feel like, you know, if you just take really smart people and throw them at a problem, they will find the way to win the problem. But not all paths up the mountain are the same difficulty. Yeah, it's really fun to have an intellectually challenging business. But like some of the best businesses are just, they just really solve the problem well. And those people are really good at managing the simplicity, right? And so, you know, and product market fit wins every day. Like a so-so team with great product market fit will absolutely crush and dominate a really, really smart team with so-so product market fit. And I always describe this, like I could go start 20, you know, people always ask me, like, are you going to go start your own business again? And like, I'm not really in a hurry. I don't, like, someone would have to like really hit me. Like, yeah, I've got like some 20 odd businesses I've thought about starting, but it's really like, what's the right business for you? And what I've learned is that the right business has a giant asterisk on it, which is how close are you actually to achieving product market fit with what level of capital? If you need a ton of money, like, you know, let's say you want to start a new drug, right? Like a new type of drug, that's really high capital for, you know, it's a big, it's high capital to, to be able to get the product market fit. If it's a consumer app, you can burn a lot of cash hoping that something catches on. Enterprise tends to be de-risked a little bit because you can get customers to pony up more money. But like, it's all about knowing what type of business is right for you. And then also really making sure that demand's there. Because if you're attacking a market where there's latent demand, so like you're going to grow hand over fist. If you're attacking a market that's going to be huge in five years, but you're doing it now, you've got to be prepared for the capital journey and the, the emotional journey it's going to take. Well, you guys are way too early. Like my business, my last business, way too early for the market. 
Um, I, there's a there's a similar business now that's taking off more, but even them, they're still early for the market, right? Like, you just it's really hard for one company to move a market. There are only a few examples of companies that really did this, and um, it took like I mean, all the leaders of those companies are, are considered legends at this point. You know? One thing I wanted to ask you, Zach, before we end here is I know you're so happy at Vizier and I know that they've really set you up for success. And speaking of bringing entrepreneurs into a larger organization, can you talk about what that transition has been like specifically with your employer? And then also, I'm just curious because you have so much knowledge that you brought to the table and how were you able to incorporate what you'd learned from Cindio and customers of Vizier? Yeah, I mean, so it's been fun. You know, my customers at, at Cindio look very similar to the, the standard customer at Vizier. I've played in the space for a while. So a lot of this, it was pretty directly transferable. The big difference being I was always focused on people analytics, whereas Vizier comes from a business intelligence background. It sounds like a small distinction, but the BI background has a huge amount of history and legacy around why things are the way they are and why some of those things are good and some of those things are terrible. I joined a team that had really deep BI experience, like these guys built and sold and sold again, like you know the leading BI products in the last 25 years. And so I was able to absorb a lot of that really fast. It took me a good year to really feel comfortable with it. But like now at this stage, like I know enough about BI where like I can talk like I'm 15, 20 years older about it. And most people don't have to fact check me too much. I mean, at the end of the day, it was really cool, right? Like my team, you know, I can only afford so much at Cindio. So my team, the average age was really young. At, on my team right now, like I'm younger than the median age on my my team, right? At least among my, my directs. And then the, on the executive team, pretty much everybody's got, you know, 20 plus years of really, really deep commercial experience, deep market experience, deep technology experience. So it's just cool because like, I feel like I had bumper lanes at bowling, but it was already pretty good at bowling. <laughs> so it makes work really fun, right? Because like, it just, you know, people were able to give me, they, you know, they granted me a lot of trust. They've treated me really great. And it's just, it's just a good company to work for. And, and at the end of the day too, like I have to say, you know, young founders don't know what they don't know. And so they make mistakes that are innocent, but really hurt the business. We just have a really seasoned operating team. And that's really fantastic to work with people like that because it's made me a better employee. It's made me a better uh, manager. And, you know, I think it's made me a better leader too. And, you know, hopefully at some point I, I get to helm something again, um, although really I'm in no rush because it's honestly miserable. But like, I feel like if I wanted to step back in the ring, like with just two years here, like I know 20 times more than I did um, the day before I joined. So it's, it's been a great experience. Zach, awesome. I really appreciate you spending time and sharing your wisdom and experience. Uh, I really think it, you touched on some really important issues when it comes to how our listeners can go about creating more entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship uh, in themselves and in the organizations that they're at. So thank you so much for giving us your time and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. My pleasure. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Zach. I also wanted to thank our listeners for spending the time to join us. Really appreciate everybody uh, listening. And you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast or find us at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.